cultural, economic, political, maybe a dash of social issues. These are discussions that we've been having since time immemorial. But it's easy to view these issues as binary. It's easy to view them as either black or white, when in fact, they're a whole lot of gray. Hi and welcome to the second episode. Smashing the Indian patriarchy? Start with sex ed. I would like to state that the following topic is obviously an extremely sensitive one, owing to the fact that it covers themes such as X-rated content and sexual violence. Additionally, I would urge all my listeners to listen to the piece in its entirety before drawing any conclusions, because I've tried to address this very pressing issue in a comprehensive manner. I would like to start off by bringing your attention to a report released in June 2018. The Reuters Foundation deemed India in this report to be the most dangerous country in the world for women. And for those of you wondering, they use four criteria to arrive at this judgment. The first, access to healthcare for women. The second, access to economic resources for women. The third, sexual abuse and harassment. And the fourth, human trafficking. Now, if you go online and look at organizations such as Human Rights Watch or Amnesty and other local as well as international media outlets, I'm sure that you will find tons of different sources that either agree with or contradict the conclusion of the Reuters report. And be that as it may, whether or not India is the most dangerous country in the world for women, the sad reality is this, that certain parts of our country are extremely dangerous for women. And we have to be doing better to guarantee the safety and security of nearly 500 million people in our country. So we will be looking at three key areas where we can at least begin to invest our time, energy, and resources towards solving what is a highly pressing problem. The first, allowing free access to sex education and explicit content. The second, dispelling the cultural myth and discussing the role of households. And finally, ensuring that feminist movements are not restricted exclusively to privileged and urban circles. So the first point, allowing free access to sex education and explicit content. The Indian government mandated that sex education be incorporated into all school syllabi throughout the country in 2005. And they called this scheme the Adolescence Education Program. And seriously, props for passing this scheme, as that is the first step. However, while this is certainly a promising first step, simply having laws that mandate sex ed should not be perceived as the end goal in and of itself. In fact, laws in the books are useless if they're not properly enforced to yield tangible outcomes. And sadly, this is the reality on the ground in India, especially in this regard. UNICEF published a 2013 report on the state of sex and reproductive health in India, which highlighted one of the major issues as the massive gap that currently exists between the policy legislation and the policy implementation. Now, it is important to note that this particular problem of there being a gap between policy legislation and implementation is not exclusively restricted to rural India. It is a problem that pervades urban, upper middle class areas as well. The proper enforcement of programs such as the Adolescence Education Program and conversations surrounding themes such as sexual intimacy and adolescence are simply not happening even in top schools in urbanized cities. Take my own personal experience. I, for one, was privileged enough to do my schooling from 
a well-reputed K-12 school in Bangalore, which for our non-Indian listeners is my hometown and a city in southern India. Now, my school was continually praised both locally as well as nationally for having things like a strong academic standing and an affluent alumni network. And yet, during my entire time there, not even once were we taught about sex education seriously. Don't get me wrong, we had adolescence education program as a class. But to put things in perspective, during one of our adolescence education program sessions in either the 9th or the 10th grade, once the topic of menstruation came up, all the guys in our entire batch were told to exit the seminar. Now, answer me this. How can you claim that you are preparing future generations, especially future men, for healthy, intimate, and sexual experiences when you're censoring information about periods and menstruation from all the guys in that class? And keep in mind, to reiterate, this was the reality in a private, well-reputed school in one of the most urbanized and developed cities in our country. Again, for reference, for our non-Indian listeners, government sources estimate Bangalore to be either the third or the fourth richest city in India. So given this reality, what do you think the state of adolescence education in rural India is going to be? Now, if you wish to dismiss my example purely because it's anecdotal, I urge you to consider the five findings of this 2015 report published by the Indian Journal of Psychiatry, as well as the UNICEF report of 2013, which we mentioned earlier on in this episode. So the first finding, 6% of adolescent women and 2% of adolescent men, note abysmally low numbers, actually felt comfortable talking to their parents about menstruation. The second finding, India has the largest number of adolescents in the world, estimated to be roughly 250 million, and yet, only 20% of them have heard the terms STDs, and 70% of them believe that men should take the final decision regarding sexual and reproductive health. The third, almost 75% of married couples in rural India felt that they do not get adequate information about sex or marriage in their adolescent age. The fourth finding, one in every three women report experiencing both domestic abuse and domestic violence. And the fifth and final finding, it goes back to the point I raised earlier about there being a massive gap between policy legislation and policy implementation. So although the Indian government has these various youth initiatives, although they have programs such as the Adolescence Education Program, a very small percentage of youth actually partakes in these programs. In fact, the national average of youth participation in programs such as ASRH, which stands for the Adolescent Sexual and Reproductive Health Strategy, is abysmally low. The national average of participation is 8%, with states like Bihar going as low as 1%. And again, the most important takeaway is this. It is one thing to pass legislation mandating that these programs exist, but it is a totally different ballgame to actively spread awareness about these programs in schools and in public life, and to train providers at these clinics not to be flippant, not to be insensitive, to guarantee confidentiality and privacy among youth participants. These are the things that will increase youth participation. So activism in this space in India needs to recognize one thing. It isn't about passing stricter laws. The laws already exist. It's about stricter implementation. And this problem is not restricted exclusively to schools. Unfortunately, it spills over to all facets of our daily life as well. Now, with the age of the internet and smartphones, the world's database and a whole host of content is at our fingertips. 
we have access to a whole array of content ranging from innocent to explicit, simply a few Google searches away. Bearing this in mind, some of you may be familiar with the Indian government banning porn sites in late October 2018. For context, this porn ban was based on a 2015 directive from the Uttarakhand High Court that porn promotes sexual assault. Now, newsflash, the porn ban obviously did not prevent people from consuming pornographic content in India. Top 10 VPN, which is a London-based VPN analytics platform, reported a 405% increase in VPN downloads in India in the past 12 months alone since the porn ban. Now, many of you may be thinking that you know what? This could be a coincidence. There are a lot of reasons that the surge in VPN downloads may have happened. It could have been a certain sports channel or a certain Netflix show that was not being broadcast in India. But trust me, this was no coincidence and it was causally linked to the porn ban. Similar web, an Israeli web analytics firm found that across more than 1,200 porn sites, the monthly average of visits to these sites from Indian consumers was 2.3 billion between January and October 2018. Note, right before the ban takes place. Now, this number rises to an average of 2.8 billion, which is roughly an increase of 500 million in the months of November 2018 to January 2019. Again, note, these are the first three months after the porn ban, and we've witnessed an increase of roughly 500 million visits on porn sites. Pornhub, which for those of you who are going to pretend that you've never heard of that before, is the world's largest platform for X-rated content. And they found that 60 million visits to their site were from India alone in the months of November and December 2018, which again, is the first two months immediately after the porn ban takes place. Pornhub estimates that this was pretty much an all-time high for visits from India for the calendar year 2018. Further, Google Trends, which is Google's official tool to analyze data patterns in Google searches, found that searches like porn VPN and porn proxy sites went up by seven to 10 times in the months following the porn ban. So what are the implications of this porn ban? Or what have the implications been thus far? Well, firstly, it's not even having its intended effect of reducing the number of people consuming pornographic content. The data I provided to you from SimilarWeb, Top 10 VPN, and Google Trends all demonstrate this fact. Secondly, with no other alternative to consume such content, users in India are opting to visit illegal platforms and streaming sites, which not only don't provide the same protections as legal sites, which we'll talk about in a second, but actually profit off of disgusting and heinous content. In 2016, multiple media outlets, ranging from Al Jazeera to the Times of India, reported that there was a demand in stores in rural Uttar Pradesh which is India's most populous state, for rape videos that sold for less than $3. And the shopkeepers of some of these stores said that these videos were often taken by perpetrators to blackmail rape victims from filing complaints to the police and were then uploaded to these illegal porn sites, ones that did not have as strict guidelines as Pornhub or any of the other platforms that were banned by the Indian government. The recognition that sexual release and sexual desire are fundamental human needs is the first step to having the right outlook on sex education and starting the right conversations surrounding sex. 
The Uttar Pradesh example shows us that if people do not have an outlet to express these needs, they will sadly resort to these horrifically disgusting measures. And this sentiment was actually echoed by Mr. Corey Weiss, who is the vice president of Pornhub. He cautioned that India's ban of pornographic content would result in Indian streaming illegal platforms to consume the said X-rated content. Now, again, why is all of this dangerous? Well, currently, regulated platforms that host pornographic content, such as Pornhub or RedTube or YouPorn, are bound by strict guidelines. For instance, no content that shows heinous acts such as torture or rape and no content that shows abhorrent acts like sexual intercourse with a minor, to name a few, are allowed on these legally regulated porn sites. And again, the Uttar Pradesh example shows us that Corey Weiss's concerns of there being a black market for illegal pornographic content are far from unfounded. And this black market for pornographic content in tandem with our complete apathetic attitude towards sex and towards sex education is adding fuel to the awfully depressing fire that we find ourselves in today. John Milton and John Stuart Mill, who were both legendary philosophers from the 17th century, founded a concept that they called the marketplace of ideas. The logic is this, that all ideas should be allowed to operate in a free market environment wherein everybody is exposed to all sorts of ideas without fear of censorship and where the best ideas outweigh the others on the face of their merit. The moment that you censor or ban something that is fundamental to human curiosity, you will create a black market for it. We even saw it with alcohol during the prohibition era in the US where speakeasies were created. Now, I know speakeasies tend to be associated with these sort of hipster venues today in 2019, but interestingly enough, these were illicit establishments that served alcohol, which came into prominence as a direct result of alcohol being banned during the prohibition era. American media giants A&E Networks, which is the broadcasting wing of the Walt Disney Company, estimates that there were more than 500,000 speakeasies on the east coast of the US alone. History.com, also owned by A&E, tells us how Al Capone, the gangster that dominated Chicago in the 1920s, also rose to prominence and actually became a multi-millionaire through racketeering and bootlegging the alcohol black market during the prohibition era. And now we're seeing similar effects for black markets for porn in India. And black markets by their very nature are extremely dangerous because of how unregulated they are. So the solution is not to ban porn or not to talk about sex. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It is to recognize the reality that these are fundamental needs that govern our society and to properly instruct and educate both the adolescent as well as general populace on how to interact with these needs in a civilized and healthy fashion. And a big component of being able to have these interactions is recognizing that women like sex too. And sadly, they're shamed for it in many parts of India. The Indian Journal of Psychiatry states that roughly 55% of Indian women across both rural as well as urban areas have been slut-shamed for expressing their enjoyment of sexual intercourse. 
Now, obviously, women enduring slut shaming is a global social problem that needs to be addressed worldwide. Men collectively around the world need to do better and need to be better educated. But that said, there are still places where women are not shamed as much for enjoying sex. The World Economic Forum found that Iceland, for instance, is the best country in the world for women as well as gender parity. The Icelandic Sexology Association states that Icelandic women are known for their positive attitudes toward casual sex. Now, this has a pretty interesting origin story. In the 1970s in Scandinavia, there was a smallpox outbreak where the king of Denmark, who ruled Iceland at the time, declared it lawful for Icelandic women, regardless of their marital status, to have up to six children in an effort to repopulate the country. So historically, sex was never associated with shame for women, but rather with pride and patriotism. And this today has led to the culture of Icelandic women and men having candid conversations about female pleasure and sexual intercourse. And they've dismissed archaic ideas of slut shaming. And having these candid conversations about such topics and recognizing that women enjoy sex as well does positively improve the situation of women's safety. And don't just take my word for it, New World Health, which is an organization that analyzes both global health as well as migration trends, found in a 2017 report that Iceland, along with New Zealand and Canada, were the three safest countries in the world for women. And the National Center for Biotech Information in the US found that these three countries also prioritized what they called comprehensive sexual education, where they taught both young men and women on how to approach members of the opposite sex, the nature of female orgasm, and other topics that are simply not talked about in India. Reversing the porn ban, making sex ed more comprehensive, and having these candid conversations. These are the first steps in guaranteeing a more safe environment for women in India. As we said at the start of this section, allow access to sexually explicit content. Have the candid conversations about sex, about how it's a perfectly normal human need and that women enjoy it as well. Pretending that this is not the case only creates a black market for sexual content. It makes women feel more unsafe. It increases the amount that they're slut shamed and it does absolutely nothing to address the issue of safety or healthy sexual relationships. Which brings me to my second point, dispelling the cultural myth and discussing the role of households in this equation. So many of you might be asking, in India, why is there such a taboo against sexual education and sexually explicit content? What with the porn ban and everything, many activists and many journalists alike have been content with saying that Indian culture is to blame. But let's take a step back and look at a couple of facts and see if Indian culture is to blame. The first fact, Hinduism, which is India's oldest religion, and some sources say that it's the world's oldest religion as well, is the only major religion in the world which has goddesses as major deities and festivals dedicated to these goddesses. And the nudity of both men and women in Hindu art is a commonplace phenomenon. The caves in Konarak in western India and the nationally renowned Kajraho temple in central India are both testament to this. The second fact. So the exact time frame is disputed as sometime between the 1st and 6th century BC, but that was around when ancient Indian philosophers wrote the Kama Sutra. And again, for those of you who are going to pretend that you don't know what that is, it's an ancient Indian text in Sanskrit, which explicitly talks about themes like sex, eroticism, and their role in satisfaction and fulfillment of human desires. So based on these facts alone, 
It is shocking that India is such a sexually repressed society today, which experiences such great crime against women. Where did we go wrong? Well, a large part of our sexually repressed present can be attributed to Victorian era history. Under British colonial rule, and under their definitions of what constituted modesty, a host of archaic laws governing social intercourse in India were passed. For instance, Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code, which criminalized homosexual intercourse, was actually struck down only recently by the Indian Supreme Court. Fun fact, it was passed in 1861 by the British Empire. The same can be said for Section 497 of the Indian Penal Code, which criminalized adultery on the grounds of, and I quote, maintaining the dignity of women. Again, this was a law that was struck down by the Indian Supreme Court in 2018. And this law also has its origin story dating back to 1860, again, passed by the British Empire. But despite all of this, despite all this Victorian-era British legislation, the messaging that surrounds both religious and cultural influences in this sphere is flawed. Rural India, for instance, is where a lot of the crime and discrimination against women and poor sexual education tends to happen. We've backed this up with the UNICEF 2013 report we talked about at the top of this episode. Now, in addition to that report, a center of the study of developing societies report in 2013 found that 52% of people in rural India identified themselves as strictly religious. Miss Doran Jacobson with the University of Chicago Press published a report in the early 1980s, where in large parts of rural India associated traditional practices of women's modesty with Indian culture. And like I stated earlier, it is very hard to argue that something is intrinsic to Indian culture, given that India hosts the only major religion in the world where women have been elevated to the status of goddess, and we gave the world the Kama Sutra. So given all of this, and the fact that India has only been independent since 1947, there is no denying that Victorian laws passed by the British Empire and dating back to the mid-1800s have surely had some residual social effects in terms of how Indian society views both sex and sexual intercourse. Again, it is important to note, I'm not blaming the British for our predicament today. I've already said that the free access to explicit content and better sex ed in schools is the need of the hour. But the narrative that ideas governing a woman's modesty and the negative outcomes associated with sexual crime and the treatment of women, the narrative that these things are intrinsic to Indian culture is what has to change. And this starts by spreading greater awareness of the fact that Victorian era legislation during the British Raj is actually how a lot of these archaic laws came about in the first place. And this messaging ought to be spread far and wide across the country, in schools, in urban areas, in rural areas, in villages, honestly, everywhere. Because the thing is this, if one truly is a devout Hindu and looks at Hinduism's artistic works and literature texts as past precedent, it is very hard to believe that the negative treatment of women in India today is rooted in Hinduism and Hindu culture. Sadly, most people in India, uh, religious or otherwise, uh, in urban or rural areas, are simply not aware of any of these facts. We need to take control of the story, and that starts with dispelling the myth that Indian culture mandates apathetic attitudes towards sex, or Indian culture is the reason for our sexual repression in the 21st century. Now, in addition to dispelling these myths, we have already spoken about 
how adolescence education programs in schools need to be more comprehensive, and how governments can enforce already existing legislation far more strictly. But again, apart from all of this, what role can households play in this equation? And the most damning indictment of how devoid of these conversations households in India are comes from a Washington Post piece in 2017, which tracks Ms. Madhumita Pandey, who was a part of the criminology department at Anglia Ruskin University in the United Kingdom. Ms. Madhumita Pandey interviewed 100 convicted rapists in India's capital city of New Delhi to understand what could prompt these people to commit such heinous crimes against humanity. She talks about how these interviews showed her the immense stigmatization of sexual conversations in Indian households, both rural and urban alike. She learned how words such as sex or penis or vagina are intentionally omitted and interactions regarding how to properly go about sexual intercourse simply are not had. Concepts like consent toward women are unheard of and false notions of masculinity and femininity are peddled instead. So the idea that a woman's virginity somehow correlates to her purity and that a man's inability to lose his virginity makes him any less masculine are both misconceptions that need to be done away with immediately and households can start in this regard. We've already shown you data which shows how a comprehensive sex education in schools leads to better outcomes both for men and for women. So having similar education and conversations at home with family members can only have positive outcomes as well. Canada, which keep in mind, uh, the New World Health Report that we spoke about earlier, found Canada as a top three country for women's safety. So Canada has a sexuality education resource center. And they corroborated this by saying that the earlier households start having these conversations about sexual intimacy with their children, the more likely that these children will grow up without stigmatizing or attaching any sort of taboo to these topics. And the reality is they will invariably deal with these topics once they're older. The Sexuality Education Resource Center of Canada also found that starting these conversations in the right manner will lead to a higher likelihood of children understanding how to navigate around having healthy sexual relationships. Households starting these conversations among their families brings me to my third and final section, which is ensuring that feminist movements are not restricted to privileged or urban circles. Now a big segue in ensuring that the above discussions are not restricted exclusively to urban and socioeconomically privileged areas is bringing individuals from rural backgrounds on board. And don't worry, I get how odd it is coming from me, given that a lot of our listeners probably hail from urban upper middle class areas themselves, me included. I'm only hoping that me doing this episode is at the very least a very small step in the right direction. But back to the point. A big overlap that does see rural labor interact with urban households is the industry of domestic workers. And for those of you who are unaware, especially our non-Indian audience, owing to India's cheap cost of labor, a lot of households in urban India can employ domestic help, such as cooks or maids or drivers, at relatively nominal rates. In a 2018 business standard report, they estimated that there were at least 50 million domestic workers in India. 
For perspective, that would be if 16% of the United States was working as domestic help in urban Indian households. Given this insanely high number, domestic workers who hail from rural areas and work in urban households are the perfect starting point for urban households to start these conversations. What is more telling is that more than 35 million of these workers are women. So having these conversations really could go a long way. Ms. Durga Shakti Nagpal, who is an officer in India's administrative services, wrote in an Economic Times piece in 2016 about how a majority of women in rural India simply aren't aware of their rights to begin with. Starting these conversations with your domestic help in urban areas is a great start to bridging this rural-urban divide. It is worth taking the onus as urban households in terms of starting these conversations, especially since the economic resources of these domestic workers are extremely limited. Monthly income for domestic workers in New Delhi, again, India's capital city, is roughly 76 US dollars, which is a little more than 5,000 rupees. Now, to put things in perspective, the median average of workers in New Delhi in general is a little more than $430 or 30,000 rupees. Now, it's important to note that while these numbers are direct conversions from Indian rupees to US dollars, and maybe they don't factor in purchasing power parity, the statistic itself is still telling that the average domestic worker makes less than a sixth of what the average worker in New Delhi does. So over and above the limited economic resources of domestic workers, a 2018 report on the status of domestic workers in India which was conducted jointly by professors at the University of Mysore and Bangalore University, found that the shocking reality that many domestic workers lived through was this. No minimum wages, awful living standards, awful working standards, emotional and physical abuse at home, the list goes on. So do you think that these domestic workers, again, who are predominantly women, 70% of these workers are women, do not forget this. Do you think that these people are aware of the rights that they are guaranteed under the UN conventions and the Geneva framework and the Indian legal system? Probably not. A simple Google search shows me this, that the international conferences on feminism and Marxism and feminist potluck events are taking place in the most elite parts of Delhi and Bombay, which is India's two most affluent cities in the coming few months. Do you think that these domestic workers, the ones who need feminism and agency from abuse the most, are even aware of these events, are aware of these concepts, the ones who drive your cars or clean your dishes for meager sums of money? Do you think that they are aware of any of these events? And we know, and we've already spoken about, our government's collective failures throughout history to properly engage with both rural men and women on topics pertaining to sex and sex education. Nor am I denying even for a moment that women who are not impoverished or working as domestic workers go through discrimination as well because they sure do. But these realities mean that until global feminism and urban Indian feminism seeks to bridge the divide that currently exists between rural circles and urban circles, change cannot be truly affected. And events like the International Conference on Feminism and Marxism that's taking place in Bombay is largely not of much use. It's until the domestic workers who clean your cars and houses are aware of these same concepts of women empowerment, of feminism, of sexual intimacy, of consent and sex education, none of that activism is going in a meaningful direction. In conclusion, I firmly believe that the three points that I've covered, the first, 
comprehensive sex education in schools, and access to explicit content on the internet. The second, dispelling the cultural myths and having honest conversations about sex and sexual intimacy in households. And the third, bridging the urban and rural divide by starting conversations with domestic labor are essential steps in beginning to make India safer for women and less sexually repressed as a society. It is high time we start having these honest conversations and take proactive measures to do so. The above three measures are a good starting point. To all our listeners in urban India, I have one humble request for you. If your household employs any sort of domestic labor, man or woman, take some time out of your day and talk to them and ask them about how they're treated by their family at home and how they treat their family at home. Ask them about their living conditions and their reactions to concepts that surround sex education, sexual intimacy, consent and respecting women and how they raise their offspring regarding the same topics. It's a very small step, but hopefully it will begin a conversation that needs to be had, especially in terms of bridging the gap that exists between the urban and rural segments of our country. So that's all on this episode of A Whole Lot of Grey. If you liked this episode and want to stay updated on future content, please be sure to subscribe to this channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or whatever platform you are listening to this on. Additionally, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or on our official website, both of which are available in this episode's description.